Now let's once again ask God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, as again we come to the sacred word, we thank you for such revelation of truth as you have given to us, to lead our feet into the paths of righteousness for your name's sake, to open our eyes to the wonder of what you have revealed in our Lord Jesus. And we thank you, O God, for what you have in the gospel made known through the work of the Holy Spirit to set us free from sin and ultimately one day to set us perfectly free in your presence forever and ever. We ask, Lord, that as we meditate in your truth this evening's things, we'll do that work that we have been singing of and praying for in the hymn that we have just sung. And we ask this, that the name of Jesus will be exalted and glorified, and his saving power will be made known in hearts and lives for your glory. Amen. Now, I don't need much of an introduction just now because I've already uh, told you a little about what we're going to be doing uh, before our reading. And uh, I mentioned there that what Paul is doing is he's talking about authentic Christian ministry. And uh, he now, in the, the remainder of the passage from verse 12 in chapter 3 to the end of chapter 5, he's dealing with various issues relating to his ministry, relating to the gospel that he preaches in his ministry. Because, as I've already said, you can't separate those two. And uh, in chapters 3, 1 to 11, he set out some features of authentic Christian ministry as far as its testimony is concerned and its resources and its true glory. And now in the remainder of chapter 3, he elaborates more fully on the nature of this ministry. And having just spoken of the glory of it in the previous verses, he naturally now begins to rejoice in the glorious freedom of it. And he draws this from three perspectives. He first of all refers to the openness and boldness with which he freely proclaims this gospel. You have that there in verse 12 in our reading. He then speaks of the freedom of mind and heart with which we can understand and appropriate the gospel more in verses 13 to 17. And then finally, he glories in the transforming freedom which it works within us. In that great and well-known verse, verse 18. So those are the three things that we want to look at uh, this evening. You can see immediately how Paul views the ministry of the gospel and the message of the gospel as being inextricably linked. The freedom that we enjoy in proclaiming the gospel, in studying the gospel, in being changed by the gospel, comes from the truth of the gospel. And of course, Paul is just simply following the teaching of Jesus here. Jesus himself taught this when he said to the disciples in John chapter 8, verse 32, you shall know the truth. And what will the truth do? 
It will set you free. The truth of the gospel when proclaimed always points us to Christ. And Christ is as he says the truth. And he went on to say if the son therefore shall make you free. You shall be free indeed. Now as believers in Christ we have been set free from the bondage and slavery of the old life. If you're a Christian you've already known something about that in your life. But this freedom, the freeness of Christian freedom, it's not only a negative thing. It's not just a question of free from what, but also free for what. And you see, that's what Paul rejoices in here. And that's what he wants us to know and to rejoice in. So let's look at these areas in which we have freedom in Christ, as Paul outlines them for us here. First of all, we're set free to proclaim the gospel more boldly. Then we're set free to understand the gospel more clearly. And then we're set free to be changed by the gospel more fully. Those are the three things that we want to take up. Let's think about the way Paul speaks of being set free to proclaim the gospel do you know that every single truth that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ announces has a liberating influence in it when we truly embrace it? You see, God's regenerating power liberates us from the reign, the reigning disposition of the old life. God's justifying grace in the gospel liberates us from the condemnation and the curse of the old life. God's sanctifying work liberates us from the corruption and the power of sin in the old life. But the particular truth of the gospel that the apostle emphasizes in this verse is with respect to the ministry of the gospel. In its glorious hope, or as he puts it in another of his letters, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now it's because of this hope that Paul is able to use such boldness and freedom of speech. And we are able to use a similar boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. You see, Paul's just been speaking in the previous verses here about the glory of the gospel Exceeding by far the glory of the old Mosaic administration. He concluded the emphasis by emphasizing the abiding nature of this glory. That is the glory of the gospel. You see unlike the glory that shone in Moses' face. This glory will never pass away. You remember how Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. We rejoice, or literally, we glory in the hope of glory. This is the wonderful thing about the gospel of Jesus. It transcends all the limits of the little while we spend in this world. And it is a very little while. It introduces us, you see, to the life of the eternal one. And consequently, it opens to us the vistas of his eternal world. 
And that's a world of glory. That's what every Christian has to look forward to. Now how should that affect our proclamation and our sharing of the gospel with others? Well, Paul says, seeing we have this hope, we use great plainness or literally again great boldness or great freedom of speech. See, the apostle is saying here that when he proclaims the gospel, he does so with openness and freedom and courage and frankness. He doesn't hold back any part of it. Sadly, there are many people, even religious people, who want us to do just that. There have been and there always are many churches even that have concealed and hidden various aspects of the truth of the gospel from the minds of the people. And people are kept in ignorance and bondage and enslaved to unbiblical systems and behavioral lifestyles that they have created for themselves. Now why do people want to water down the gospel and hide it like that? Well, I suppose many reasons can be given. But a major one is because they don't want to suffer criticism. Or persecution, or loss of position, or possessions, or even life itself, for the sake of the gospel. In other words, their focus is on this life, with its comforts and successes and enjoyments and popularity. But you see, for the Apostle Paul, his citizenship was in heaven. And he really meant that when he said it. His desire was to glorify Christ and to be with him forever. And that glorious hope led him to live lightly to the things of this world. And that hope led him to go out into the thoroughfares of the Roman Empire to proclaim Christ boldly wherever he went. And openly, holding nothing back, no matter what men may think of him, no matter how men might treat him. You see, they could not take Christ from him, no matter what they did to him. They couldn't take from him the glory that Christ was already sharing with them in the gospel, or the hope of eternal glory that Christ promised to him. You see, Paul saw the sharing of this glorious gospel with others as his only reason for desiring to remain in this world. And if you want support for that statement, read Philippians 1, 23, 24, when you go home. Let me illustrate it from a modern example. Well, pretty modern. During the Boxer Uprising at the beginning of the 20th century in China, a young Christian was arrested for preaching the gospel. His persecutors told him they would take away all his possessions if he didn't stop. He simply replied that his real possessions were in Christ and they couldn't touch them there. They then said to him, we'll put you in prison. He responded that the Christ who had made him free would be with him even in prison and they couldn't deprive him of that freedom. And when next they threatened to banish him to Mongolia, 
He exclaimed, Great! I've always wanted to go there to preach the gospel. Finally, they said they would execute him, put him to death. You know what he answered? He says, that will be fine. I will then be with Christ, which is far better. You can never shackle a man who has that mentality. Never. He's a man who enjoys a freedom that no other man knows. He will not compromise or refrain from proclaiming Christ because he knows he has in heaven a more enduring substance than this world can ever offer. So that's why Paul says we're set free to proclaim the gospel more boldly. If we're applying the gospel to our own lives in the way that Paul was, that's the kind of freedom that we ought to enjoy. Second thing Paul says, we're set free to understand the gospel more clearly. That's in verses 13 to 17. See, the whole purpose of preaching the gospel is that men might come to understand the truths of the gospel we preach. And this is what Paul goes on to explain here. And again, he goes back to the incident of Moses' face shining when God spoke with him and imparted his word to him. The people, we read, could not look upon the brightness of his countenance, so what Moses did was to cover his face with a veil. Now, that, of course, was to protect the people from the radiance of that glory, but there was another aspect to it. There was another reason for that veil. It was also so that the people would not see the radiance gradually fade, diminish, and disappear. You see, the glory hidden behind and obscured behind Moses' veil wouldn't be there for long. Paul uses this once more as a symbol, showing the difference between his ministry and that of the old administration. You see, he wants the people of Israel to see why. He wants his fellow Jews to see why they have rejected Christ. Just as that veil prevented the people from seeing clearly the outward glory of God's word in the face of Moses, there was also a veil over their own hearts and minds that prevented them from understanding the inner light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what's that veil? That veil is our sin. You see, sin leaves us always in the bondage of darkness and ignorance. It keeps us bound it keeps us fettered. Now that Old Testament veil 
That outward veil was, a sim- was symbolic of an inner veil that blinded the minds of the Jews to the true meaning and purpose for which God's words and laws were given by Moses. And it still blinds the minds of men in that way. The Old Testament ceremonies and laws were given to put the people in remembrance of their sins so that they might seek God's mercy and forgiveness through the promised Messiah to whom they pointed. Sadly, the Jews largely ignored them as a means by which to come to Christ. And they interpreted them as a means by which to achieve their own righteousness through their own good works rather than by faith in the Savior who was to come. You read about that in Romans 9. Consequently, their minds became dull and hardened as they read the Old Testament scriptures through successive generations. As Paul says, to this day, to this very day, and he's speaking about centuries after the time of Moses, but he says to this very day, that veil is upon their hearts. But when Paul preached the gospel, he didn't place any veil over it whatsoever. He didn't obscure it or hide it or blind it in any way. You see, he knew that this inner veil of unbelief still remained over our hearts when the gospel was preached. But he rejoiced that when the gospel was preached in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, that veil could be removed. It happened in his own life. On the road to Damascus. And it has happened in so many lives since. And it would continue to do so in both Jews and Gentiles. In these verses here, Paul is mainly referring to Jews. But in the next chapter, he'll go on to show that all men are in the same condition. Those to whom the light of the gospel is hidden are those whose minds have been blinded, Paul says, by the God of this world, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine in. That's in chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4. And again in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says something the same. He says that the natural man understands not the things of the Spirit, Neither can he know them. It takes the Holy Spirit and his work to enlighten us and to set us free. You see, the good news is that in Christ there is deliverance. There's a way of deliverance, a way to freedom. When Paul says the veil is upon their hearts, He adds that when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And the Lord here is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul himself says at the end of verse 14, the veil is taken away. He means it's only taken away in Christ. 
we recognize and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior when that veil is removed. And that is what the Jews refused to acknowledge. That's why they wouldn't acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. We will not have this man to reign over us. And people are still saying that. Both Jews and Gentiles are still saying that. Right down to the present day. You see the agent of this delivering enlightening work. Is said here to be the Holy Spirit. Paul uses a very unusual phrase here. He says the Lord is that spirit. Now what does he mean by that? Well he's simply referring to the oneness of Jesus and the spirit. In the same way that Jesus spoke of being one with the Father. I and my Father are one. And so it is with the Spirit. Father, Son and Holy Spirit are one in the Godhead. And again, Christ is said to dwell in our hearts by faith. How does he do that? If he's in heaven. He does it by his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit whom he has sent into this world for this very purpose. But the point that Paul is driving at is that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see, he's the one who removes the veil. He's the one who takes away the blindfold from our eyes and the bondage from our lives. He causes us to understand the real nature of our sinfulness. And then he enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. He shows us how Christ has dealt with all our sins. Past, present and future. And he has dealt with them fully, finally and completely. In his sinless life and in his atoning death on the cross. And as we study and listen to God's word. The Holy Spirit takes of the things of Christ and makes them known to us so that we might go on growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ therefore rejoice in a new freedom. Just like the blind man said when Jesus healed him, one thing I know, for as I was blind, now I see. That's it. He could easily have said, once I was bound, but now I'm free. Now what is it we see? We see that Christ has forgiven the sins that condemn us. We see that Christ has broken the chains that bound us. We see that Christ has conquered the sin that enslaved us. And we see too that he has conquered the devil who deceived us. And we see that Christ has secured the glory that awaits us. Paul's just summing up the whole gospel in these simple words. So that's the second thing that Paul tells us about this Christian freedom. He says we're set free to proclaim the gospel more boldly. And we're set free to understand the gospel more clearly. And then in the last verse, 
He says we're set free to be changed by the gospel more fully. This is a great verse. The apostle now proceeds to describe the ongoing liberating work of the spirit in the lives of those who have been redeemed and freed from its bondage, the bondage and the blindness of ignorance and sin. You see, what he's referring to here now is the work of sanctification that God continues in the lives of his people after they have been brought to the knowledge of Christ. That's what God is seeking to do in our lives. It's a work of change. Those of you who are brought up in the Shorter Catechism will remember how it's defined. It says, it's the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Now amazingly, in the confines of this one verse, Paul points out six significant aspects of this work of sanctification in the lives of believers. Now we haven't time to look at them in any great detail, but I just want to mention them to you and comment on each one briefly as we conclude our service. The first thing he tells us about it is it's a collective work. A collective work. Notice how he begins the verse. He says, we all. You see, none of God's children are excluded from this gracious work. Whatever their background or education or gifts, they're all subject to this sanctifying process. You know, I remember not too long after I was converted, I was working with a man helping him to turn a field of hay with pitchforks we did in those days. And of course, we got into conversation each time we went around the field. He was going one way and I was going the other. And we get into conversation several times and we began to talk about Christian things. He did profess to be a Christian too. And we began to speak about the subject of godliness of life. And I never ever forgot a remark he made. He said, but it's not given to all Christians to live like that. That is to live godly lives. But what's the truth? The truth is that we cannot hide behind an exception of that kind. It is for every Christian to pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. If there's no such work going on in a man's life, the plain truth is he's not a Christian, whatever he may profess. You see, God is concerned that something of his glory and his likeness will be reflected in each of his children and in every fellowship of Christians, wherever they may be and in whatever circumstances they may live under. We all, that's every Christian in this globe tonight, so it's a collective work. Second thing is it's an ongoing work. We all with unveiled face, he says. 
Now that indicates a work that has already begun. The veil has been taken away. We have begun to see the glory of the gospel of Christ. But that look, you see, is to become a steady gaze. It's not just a question of one look to Christ and what he has done on the cross and say, wonderful, now I can just go and get on with my life in the way I want it. Oh no. The look must become a steady gaze upon Christ and what he has done. With unveiled face we go on beholding, as in a mirror, says Paul, the glory of the character of our Lord. And as we keep our eyes on Jesus, even though it is still not the immediate sight of him that we will have in heaven, we do catch more and more of the reflected glimpses of his glory in the ministry of his word. And as we do so, we're more and more changed into his likeness. It's an ongoing work. Third thing is it's an, an inward work. He says we all with unveiled face are changed or being changed. Changed or transformed is a word that we use to describe the change that takes place in a caterpillar at the chrysalis stage. It undergoes what's called a metamorphosis. The word comes from the very word that Paul uses here, metamorphose. You see, inside the chrysalis, a gradual change takes place so that when the little creature eventually emerges from its cell, it has taken on a new appearance altogether. It's now no longer a caterpillar. It's a butterfly. It's got wings now, flits among the flowers, above the ground, where it once crawled as a common pest. And that's the way God describes the transformation that he is effecting in the lives of believers. It's an inward change that manifests itself more and more outwardly. Until one day it will be manifest in all its completeness and likeness. David anticipated that day in Psalm 17 when he said, I will behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. That was the goal that David had in view. And it ought to be the goal of every Christian. On the way there. It's an inward work. Collective. Ongoing. Inward. And it's a pervasive work. You see a metamorphosis is not limited to one part or one area. Of the being of that little caterpillar. And in First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23. Paul prayed this prayer. For believers everywhere. That the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body would be preserved blameless. See Paul is making it clear that this change is taking place in every area of life. Our spiritual life, our soul life, our bodily life. 
and we are being conformed to the likeness of Christ in his attitudes and his actions and his words and his thoughts. It's pervasive. It's not something just for your mind or just for your heart or one part of your being. It's for your whole personality, your whole being. And then furthermore, it's a progressive work. He says we are being changed more and more from one degree of glory to another. See, God is molding our characters more and more to the likeness of Jesus. It's one of the most beautiful and encouraging things in church life to see God's work developing and maturing in the lives of his children as they respond to his word week by week. You know, over periods of time you can see the fruit of the Spirit appearing here and there. Where once there was abrasiveness and aggressiveness and self-assertiveness, a more gentle spirit begins to be manifest. More of the spirit of Jesus. You see, where preoccupation with the world and its habits and desires brought bondage even into our devotions, there's now greater freedom in worshipping the Lord. That's the real satisfying fruit in the ministry of the gospel. And then finally, not only is it a collective work, an ongoing work, an inward work, a pervasive work, a progressive work, it's an abiding work. Paul concludes by saying, notice, it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, this work has its source in the call of Christ through the regenerating work of the Spirit. And all its effects and fruits come from the continuing work of the Spirit in us through his word. But the really glorious thing about this is the promise that when God begins such a good work in the life of a man, he assures us that he will continue it and he will complete it and he will bring it to perfection. Philippians 1.16 tells you that very clearly. There may be many ups and downs on the way. There may be many obstacles, many stops and starts, many difficulties and disappointments. But always remember this. What God begins is forever Write that into your mind when you seek to live for God. And when God is pursuing this sanctifying work in your life and sometimes he'll bring you into very difficult periods in order to achieve that end. Remember this. What God begins is forever. His work, you see, is this abiding and eternal as his own name and his own nature. It comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, the eternal Lord. Well, what does all that mean to you? 
Listen again to the words of Paul. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Has that freedom begun in your life? The freedom of the gospel. And then add to that the words of our Savior himself. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. It will be real freedom, in other words. See, the question here is, is the liberating power of the gospel evident in that way in our lives? Is it being exalted in your life and in mine? You see, that's what the proclamation of the gospel is intended to do. To bring us nearer to Christ. So that you and I too can begin to sing. Once I was bound in sin's galling fetters. Chained like a slave, I struggled in vain. But I received a glorious freedom. When Jesus rent my fetters. In twain. And if you're not a Christian tonight, make sure that before you leave this building, you're right with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once more we bow humbly before your presence. We come to you, the living God. And we thank you, Lord, for the manner in which you are pleased to manifest yourself when your gospel is being made known. When the truth of your work, what you desire to do in us, is set forth from your word. We pray that you will bless your word then to all our hearts, to this end. And for your glory. Amen. And amen.